this morning. We are closing down our series on Happily Ever After. Started this several weeks back by saying that the enemy of Happily Ever After is not our spouse or our in-laws or our money or our job or our children. The enemy is right in here. It's our wicked, selfish, sinful heart. Second week, we looked at a, a key principle for helping to overcome that through the power of Christ, and that is Proverbs 19.11 that says, A man's wisdom gives him patience, and it's to his glory to overlook an offense. We said heavenly spouses are those who overlook offenses. None of us are married to the perfect person. We aren't the perfect person. We need our, our offenses overlooked. We need to be doing the same thing. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at a, a key principle, First Peter 3, 7. It's written to husbands, but it's for all of us. And it says, husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. It's, consider the other person really above yourself when you, when, you, when you do your life together, treating them with respect as the weaker or the more costly, the more fragile partner, so that, so that you'll have a happy life? No, it's not what he says. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Our vertical relationship with God is directly dependent on our, our horizontal relationships. And so tonight, we, today, we, come, we close this thing down. And it's uh, difficult when we talk about marriage, biblical perspective, to not address the issue of, of sex, sexual intimacy. Now, the church has... So this is going to be an interesting talk this morning. Uh, so, so get the pens ready. You know, the, the church has not done a real good job with this over the years. Uh, it's too sensitive. It's, too, it's just easier to leave it alone because you're not going to get some bad emails if you leave it alone. But the Bible says a lot about this. And the church has, like I said, has not done the greatest job over the years. For young people, you know, our, the church's um, statement has been, no, right? Regarding sex, no, 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 no. And then they get married and it's like, eh, okay, cool, it's all right. You know, that's, that's, is that all Scripture's got to say? It's not all Scripture has to say. It will say six, sex is dirty. You know, it's, it's icky. It's gross. Save it for the one you love. Is that the message of Scripture? That's not the message of Scripture. The world, of course, is, it's, it gives us wrong view about everything, right? Uh, it's normal for a s- sinful, wicked heart, fallen world, to take those gifts that God has given and distort, to twist, to abuse, to use them in ways they're not, whatever we're supposed to be used, to set them up as an idol, as God himself, to worship those things. And in doing so, we destroy them. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look at uh, a book of the Bible that God put in Scripture that doesn't teach us how to pray. It doesn't teach us how to worship. It doesn't teach us how to give. It doesn't teach us how to witness. It teaches us only about romantic sexual love. Believe it or not, there is a book in the Bible that that's its only purpose. Keep in mind, Hugh Hefner did not invent sex. Hollywood did not invent sex. God did. The Bible begins with a naked man and a naked woman, man singing raptures love songs to her in the presence of God. That's how the Bible starts. And this specific book that I haven't heard too many messages on, we're going to look through this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs in your Bible. I uh, want to take my hat off to both Tim Keller and um, Mark Ashton for their help this week. Uh, I don't know these guys personally, but their, their resources were great this week as we put this together. So we're going to dig right in. And as you're, you're looking at your, your scripture, let me give you some just preliminary stuff to help you understand this book. Because maybe you've read it before and you're going, well, this didn't sound like any great thing when I read it. Well, a couple of things. First of all, this book is like a soundtrack to a Broadway musical. 
Okay, I mean, you've got the songs, but you don't have the acting drama part between the songs. And so we've got to c- connect the dots in all the songs to help us understand the story. Also, you'll notice that this, all the songs are really divvied up between three different people. You've got the uh, beloved, or the, the she, it might be uh, in, your, in your word. Uh, you've got the he, or the lover, and then you've got the friends. And with the choir, and with every relationship that starts off, and you know this is true, there are always three parties to the relationship. There's the guy, there's the girl, and there's the girl's girlfriends, right? And that's what's going on here. That's what's happening. That's what we get going on here. Now, the, the outline of the book, this helps us a lot. Really, from 1-1 one, one to 3-5 is really their courting days. And when you look through this, these are just two kids that are crazy in love with each other and the hormones are running high, but they're doing it. They're okay. They're cool. But, but that's what's going on up into 3-5. 3-6-5-1 is the honeymoon. We're going to look at that. And then from 5-2 on is the happily ever after. It's the rest of the, the story. And believe it or not, things don't go downhill. Like we would think, well, that's just the way life is. No, it's not. It's not. So let's dig right in. We're going to start with 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Isn't it a great way for a Bible book to begin? Yeah, you don't get that too often. That mean, and you know what's interesting about this is the person saying that is the girl. I don't know where we got this. I don't know if it's our culture, it's society. Somehow we think for the girl to be interested, to be passionate, to be initiating, there's something filthy about it. It's trashy. It's, it's, it's icky. That's not. That's normal. That is, is, is what God would intend. So it's, it's, it's healthy. Also, you, you notice this idea of, it starts this way, you all need to know, it's going to get a lot hotter from this point on. I mean, it doesn't just stop here. Oh, no, now it's going to get, they're going to go have a prayer meeting. So, no, that's not what they do here. That's not what happens. Um, you need to know that the translators of this book have actually balked, and every trans, they balked on some of the graphic depictions I mean, there, are, there is graphic. We're not, this, I know we got a PG audience, so parents don't start running for the exit with your kids. And I'm going to treat it that way. But there are depictions in here of a man and woman aroused. And the translator, what do you do with that? It's like, well, I'm not going to put something uh, cultural on this one so no one understands what's going on. Um, when I was studying the, this this past year, I was going through Song of Songs, and there would be times I would have to stop and just put the books down and go... Hang on, whoa, man, what's going on? Am I in the Bible or what? Uh, sex, anyone who will say, and this is just good for us, anyone who will say sex is, 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 God is anti-sex, they just have not read the Bible. They don't know. They're talking about stuff they have no idea of because God is very, very, very pro-sex. And what you get in this book is something Hollywood can't come up, connect with. They just can't. So let's look at these guys. Let's look at the identity of the people. We're going to start in verse 5. She says, this is the gal talking. She says, dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. Then she starts making excuses for her being dark. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have neglected. Now, this gal is a very normal girl. She she's, she's goes through in her mind what all girls do, and I would say what all guys do. Maybe she gets alone in front of the mirror. She says, I'm kind of cute. And she says, aren't I? Nobody would really like me. I could have a good relationship with somebody. I don't know if I really can. 
I don't know if it, she's got this confliction going on here about herself, which is something that we all deal with. We all deal with this self-conscious thing going on. That's where this girl is at. And she's not perfect. She tells us, I've got some defects. Now, are they real or imagined? I don't know, but she thinks they're real. And let's look at the guy in verse 7. She's talking. She says, tell me, you whom I love, where do you graze your flock and where do you rest your sheep at midday? Now, I know there's an interpretation. It's a very common interpretation that this guy is actually Solomon. We're going to address that a little bit later on. But let's at least say this, that this guy is a shepherd. That's what he does. Shepherd uh, analogy and metaphor and language all throughout this whole book. This guy is a shepherd. And I will say, this is a common couple. There's no blue blood here. You've got a common, ordinary, common girl and a common, ordinary, common guy uneducated, uh, hard worker, hardworking folk. And, and this is very encouraging to me because when God was going to choose the poster children for a godly, deep, romantically fulfilling marriage, he, chose, he didn't choose Paris Hilton, he's not in here. And Brad Pitt and Justin Bieber, they're not in here. The common folk, we can, we can have that. We can have that. Uh, and it's, unless we think, well, it's got to be perfect, like Hollywood will tell us, these guys are going to have some issues. They're going to have some issues behind closed doors. We'll talk about those when, when, we, when we get there. But common people. Now, look in verse 9, because the gal already established right at the beginning that she's anxious for her, for her lover. Verse 9, the guy comes back and he retorts. He says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. That'll win her over, won't it? Yeah, okay. Well, we got a ways to go. This is Romeo is blowing it. I'm gonna let, let me let me paraphrase this though. Really, I believe what he's saying, and this is not this is not original to me, is he's saying, sweetie, sweet munchkins, you drive me crazy. <laughs> and this is what's going through his mind. The same thing that was going through her mind. And if, in fact, you can think of these young they're dating and they're going to get married, yeah, it's been going through all their mind, right? Well, he's got this going on as well. In verse, in verse uh, 15, they, they play with each other a little bit verbally. They're talking back and forth to each other. And he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. And she comes back, oh, no, 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 no. You are the handsome one, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant, and the beams of our house are cedars, and our rafters are first. With the verdant and rafters and cedars and fir means, uh, similar to the Carpenter's song a bazillion years ago, I know I date myself, I'm on the top of the world looking down on creation, right this? And the only explanation I can find is the love that i found ever since you've been around. That's what they're saying. They're saying it's just you and me in the world is our playhouse. It's just us. This is, this is the kind of stuff that we know because maybe we've been there a long time. This is what they're going through too right here. And then she comes back after she he said, he said, oh, you're beautiful. She said, oh, no, 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 you're beautiful. Then she says, chapter 2, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the, the valleys. And you might think, well, she's getting a little bit cocky. She's going to her head here. No, 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 no. Rose of Sharon was very, very common, almost like a weed. Lily, very, very common. And all she's saying is, I am no great shakes. There's nothing special about me. I'm just one among a million. I'm just a weed, a wildflower on the side of the road like a gazillion others. Now, gentlemen, sometimes it's not good to agree with your wife. 
And sometimes she doesn't want you to agree with her. See, discernment. And so this guy stops and he starts thinking, okay, how do I handle this one? What do I do? I don't want to get myself... What does he do? And so he'd be in trouble. What if he said, yeah, that's right. You're just a, you're just a weed. No, that's not going to work. So what does he say? Lily of the valley. Like a lily among thorns. <laughs> I love it. It's my darling among the maidens. Yeah, all those other ones, they're like, they're painful to look at compared to you. Man, you are, wow, you're just like, wow, you're, wow. Now, was this girl perfect? Well, I'm, I'm guessing. Now, I'm guessing that if you and I saw her picture, we'd go, huh? Yeah. In his eyes. It's interesting when we look at this book, these guys had a very intense romantic life going on. But they also, all the way to the end, this doesn't stop after the honeymoon, man, right before the, this is not, this keeps going all the way to the end. They also had a very, very complimentary uh, choosing to delight in the other person. That never ended. That didn't stop. Now, often what will happen, uh, if I can get real frank for just a second, the guys, well, we'll throw this side away, and, but we'll still expect this part, the romantic thing, to be rolling. We'll say, well, what's the problem? We need to know that if the romantic part's going to be rolling. It only happens in the context of the, the deep emotional thing going on as well. And it's not flattery. Flattery is when you say those things, but you really don't mean it in your heart. It, it's saying these things from your heart. You choose to delight in the other person. This is important because none of us have married the perfect person. Well, this is just the simple, natural, easy thing. We choose to delight in them. So let me ask you, evaluate your own speech with your spouse this past week. What's it been like? Is it been just because life is rolling the way it's rolling? It's just like a technical manual. Man, pick up this and go here and do that and do this. And we throw in some negatives once in a while. By the way, you forgot that one. Is that what it is? We need to keep in mind that our spouse is getting beat up by the world. The one place they don't need to be beat up is home. Your people in the world may compliment your spouse. Flatter them a little bit with ulterior motives. And if they come home and they're getting beat up verbally as well, this is a bad, bad prescription. It's a bad recipe. They need to know when they come home, even though they know you know their dirt better than anybody, that you're not flattering them, but you're choosing to delight in them. And you're letting them know that they are the apple of your eye. And you're you're going to be their cheerleader like nobody else in this world will be their their cheerleader. Uh, We go on over. To verse 16. Great, great uh, verse. Because a, a key part of having a love life that God would ordain, that God would honor, that is at its max, is this idea of a commitment. It only happens in a commitment of exclusivity. Look at 2.16. She says, my lover is mine. And I am his. She's going to repeat this multiple times through the book. 6, 3, 7, 10. She says this kind of thing again. That my lover belongs to me. I belong to my lover. It's an exclusive relationship. And only, now this is, this is really the, as I was going through this, we could do a series on this. And we probably should with all the junk that the world is throwing at us. We probably need to do a series on it sometime to think, think it through God's, God's eyes, God's way. But understanding that this idea of Sexuality, God designed to be at its peak in the context of marriage. If you look, we're only turn one other place, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus is talking. And he says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. 
Now, by the way, he said this. He's agreeing. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the one who gave this command on the mountain to Moses years before he came down to earth. This is right. Now, he's going to add to it, or he's going to actually bring it back to its original definition. But what he's saying is any sex outside of marriage is, is, is in that, getting into that adultery category. He's saying it only is to happen in the confines of marriage. You know, this is key because our, we know it with our vows, right? When we make vows, we say, we say, taking you and you alone. We might say, well, those are just words. We invented those words. Well, no, 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 no. You didn't invent those words. That is the biblical definition of marriage. Any relationship that is not exclusive, whatever else it may be called, in God's eyes, it's not called marriage. Uh, it, it, in the context of marriage alone is where this is supposed to transpire. Now, if you think through a consumer relationship for a second, okay, you've got a business and you've you got, you got a vendor coming in, um, what do you do? Well, you shop around. You, you check this guy out. Finally, he's going to give you the best deal, better than anybody else. So you sign the thing and say, okay, listen, this is good for, good for me. This is why I've got this business going on with you. But you need to know that I'm shopping around. And if I ever find a better deal, more product, less cost, <laughs> I'm going for it. Yeah, your relationship with me is only there as long as you give me the best deal. But as soon as, as my needs aren't being met, I'm out of here. Meanwhile, marriage is a covenant relationship where we, we come into a covenant. It's not about me getting my needs met. It's about me giving. And when you enter into it in that regard, you giving, you know what? Crazy thing. Your needs are met. Um, Kierkegaard, Danish a philosopher, he said that, that if you are in a marital relationship or in any kind of relationship, but your goal is, uh, guy-girl type of thing, your goal is what I can get out of it. Your goal is my needs. Your goal is my feelings. And as long as I'm feeling, as long as my needs are being met, cool, but as soon as they're not, I'm out of here. Kierkegaard says you are a slave to your feelings which are almost always irrational. Where do they come from? What kind of junk goes into feeding what those are? You are a slave to that, and that will dictate and determine wherever you end up, where you go in life. Kierkegaard would say, you're interested in real freedom. You make a commitment. You continue in that commitment regardless of the feelings. Now, with Jesus, this is interesting where he goes with this idea of sexuality. Because he says, adultery is not good. He says, I'm going to take it a little bit further, though. Sex has to stay in the, the confines of marriage, but even if it goes out of that confines in your own mind, it's not good. Jesus said that even if you, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And of course, a key aspect of helping us get there today is pornography. Now, there was a day when you had to drive off the road or you had to order the magazine that came in brown paper and no one knew. Type, if you really wanted to get pornography, you had to work a little bit, but not today, Right? Not, it's not just clicking on trashy web pages. It's, there's, there's normal, your news web page. There's always little graphics on there of things that however else you wanted to find them, they are soft porn. And we, we might think, well, it's not a bad web page. Well, if it's got pornography on it or things that, that elicit a sexual feeling in you, it's, 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 it's wrong. And you can't get to a web page today without advertisements and everything popping up. And it, it, it's all over. But Jesus says that if, if you take sex outside this confine of, of marriage, you're abusing it. Because sexuality was never something for you to use by yourself. 
It's something that, that happens within here. It's, it's the super glue of marriage. It, it's, it's what brings a husband and wife continually back, saying, you know what, the world, and I got forgotten, I got, but, but we belong to each other. My, com- my commitment is to you and yours to me. We are one. And every time that's engaged in, that, that reaffirmation of your wedding vows basically transpires. It's that idea that sexuality, the way God meant it to work, is only in the confines of marriage. As soon as we take it out, we blow up. That's what he says when he's referring to when he says, hey man, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. He's saying you do whatever you have to to get this pornography out of your life. Now, I know, I know some folk will say, hey, pornography is just my issue. It doesn't affect anybody else. Interesting book, uh, Oxford University Press. So this is not a Zondervan book. Uh, these guys do not have a Christian agenda. Premarital Sex in America by Regnerus and Euchre. They, they say this, sociologists, and they say, uh, they're talking about this pornography doesn't hurt anybody. They said, on the contrary, pornography now affects virtually everyone's relationship. Number one, people who use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations of beauty and sexual performance. Again, keep in mind, this is not just their opinion. This is a sociological study. Number two, a significant number of male porn users experienced a diminished tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships. In other words, I can, I can have my sexual needs met somewhere else. I don't even need to bother with this goofy relationship and the problems and the hassles and the emotion. Forget all that. I will go elsewhere and... I would have a virtual relationship in my mind. And they, 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 their commitment to relationship to making it work is diminished. It says all women, we argue, this is our third point, are increasingly being forced, all women, we argue, are increasingly being forced to accommodate sexual behaviors and appearances in the image and style of pornography. Now, I want you all to know, here here at the the church, guys on the management team, uh, my computer, for example, let me give you my computer, every two weeks, a a report is sent to Pastor Dave Schneider on where my computer's been. If it goes to a bad site, he knows about it. Uh, All the guys on the management team, we have that accountability with each other. It's uh, uh, XWatch 3. It is free. Uh, There's another... uh, site you can have. It's called Covenant Eyes. It's free. Well, no, Covenant Eyes, you're going to pay a little bit. But Canine, the next one, is free. Now listen, if you have kids at home and you've got computers at home, my, uh, you, you need something like this on, one, on your machines, all of your machines, to protect as much as, as you can. Personally, I don't know what I'd have done as a junior high kid if I had the access that they have today. Also, let me throw a couple things out. Guys, there, guys there's a book out by Stephen Arterburn called Every man's battle. Now, the reason why they call this every man's battle is because it's every man's battle, right? It would be a very good book for, if we could pick a couple of books that every man needs to read, this is one of them. You need to know this, guys. You need to read it. There's another book, Every Young Man's Battle. Guys, dads, if you have junior high boys at home, early senior high, get this book. The front end of this book, you read it, it's just for you. Second part of this book, you read with your son. And it puts a lot of stuff on the table, but it helps prepare your boy for the junk they're going to be facing the rest of their life. Steve Arterburn, Every Young Man's Battle. Important stuff. Let's go back and let's look at their honeymoon for a second. Interesting stuff. In Song of Songs, chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 6. 
He says, who is this coming? And this is where it gets, this is the interpretive issues that we talked about earlier. Who is this coming from the desert like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it's Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest in Israel, nine and nine and nine. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. You told me earlier this was a common guy. This Solomon is not a common guy. Solomon's pretty blue blood here. Why would, this, like I say, this is a huge interpretive issue in the book. You know, is, is this book written by Solomon about someone else? Was it written by Solomon about Solomon? Was it written about, about someone else about, about Solomon? Was it this gal conflicted with a lover who's a shepherd as well as Solomon? There's a lot of questions. And a plausible interpretation is that this guy was in fact Solomon, her lover. Uh, I would say not, and this is why. My, my, this is not salvific, but this is my thoughts. And again, this is not unique to me. First of all, this guy is a shepherd. Clearly, he's a shepherd all over the place. Solomon was never a shepherd. Now, David was a shepherd before he got in the palace, but Solomon was born in, in the palace. He was never a shepherd. Number two, the exclusivity is all over the place in this book. It's just he and I. But Solomon had how many wives? 700 wives. And how many mistresses? 300 more. This guy was a busy hit. This girl, he would saw this girl once every three or four years, maybe at best. Hardly an exclusive relationship. But here is an exclusive relationship. So I think when she's saying this, we do this same kind of thing. Don't we say, he's my king. She's my queen. She's my princess. You know? And, and, and this, this, this is his cottage is my palace. We, say, we use that same type of language, and this is the kind of place it comes from. The most important person. The, the key guy is the king. So when a woman would say, he's my king. Okay, there's too many compliments that go beyond that. So they're using the kind of terminology that we might use. The honeymoon kicks in a little bit further in chapter 4, verse 1. That was the ceremony, but verse 1 says, how beautiful, this is Romeo again, going with, he's going to give it another shot. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes beyond your veil are like doves. Now, doves, a couple things. First of all, they were used as messenger birds, and so they convey messages, and we know this is true. When you look deep into someone's eyes, there are messages that are conveyed that way. But also in Scripture, doves are a very sacred animal. Noah sends out the dove. He gets a message of hope. Jesus, when he's baptized, the spirit comes down as a dove. Doves are one of the few animals that are sacrificial animals. What he's saying, when I look into your eyes, you know what? I am on holy ground. Romeo's getting a little bit better, right? He's going to blow up with this one. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. As a shepherd, probably the goats coming down the hill, they're wavy, they're fur, they're fur, they're whatever, wool. And he's saying, probably you've got curly hair. I like the way it bounces. It's, 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 I like your hair. Okay, that's good. Uh, <laughs> two, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. He's going, <laughs> he should have stopped right after the, the doves thing. <laughs> Keep in mind, not a whole lot of toothpaste or toothbrushing or flossing or cleanings or dentists. There's not a lot of understanding of how cavities operate. And so as a person gets older, it was really relatively common for them to lose their teeth. But this gal, she's not missing one. 
Everyone in the top, there's one on the bottom. They match. This is looking good to this guy. This gal's got all of her teeth, stuff we take for granted. They, it's a different era. It says, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. He says, your neck is like the Tower of David built with elegance, stately. On it hang a thousand shields. Probably your necklaces, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. I'll let you all talk about that one and to find that one on your way home uh, in verse 9 he keeps going and he says you have stolen my heart my sister my bride you have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes with one jewel of your necklace how delightful is your love my sister my bride how much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume and it takes us down to 416 actually right here is going to be the, the central part of the book she says awake north wind Come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. She's not talking about corn and beans and those kind of things. Earlier, her garden, she's referred to as one whose garden is locked up. Earlier, she will say, do not awaken my love until it's time. But here she says, it's time. Awake. She opens the garden. And what happens? What does the guy? Well, he's five one. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, O friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. You know, it's interesting. In this book, there are 110 lines before this section. There are 110 lines after this section. This is the very central part of this book. That is not an accident. They're showing the power of sexual intimacy in the confines of a marriage, what it's meant to do. It's not for uh, just procreation, like the prudes would say, or recreation, like Hollywood would say. It is for consummation, and it is for preservation of the union. That's what they say. Now, verse 2, it's not the next day. Uh, It could be weeks, months, years down the road. We don't know. But she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. This is what he says. He says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Now, uh, it would have been normal for them to have separate uh, sleeping chambers. He was working all night, obviously, out in the the dew, taking care of the flocks. Uh, But he comes to her sleeping chamber, and he's knocking on the door saying, honey, sweetie, what's on this guy's mind? Yeah, we know what's on this guy's mind. He's, 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 He's interested, right? But what does she say? Verse 3, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? You know, I've washed my feet. Must I so that I'm asleep for crying out loud. What are you doing? I've got a headache right now is what she's saying. <laughs> and then she starts thinking this over. So she gets up, goes to the door, but he's gone. So she starts looking for him and she's regretting where, where she's been. She finally finds him. Chapter 6, verse 4. To our knowledge, she has not... Um, apologize to him. She's not saying anything negative to him. Uh, uh, she hasn't tried to make up with him at all. She comes to him, and this is the first thing he says. Now, guys, this is important. Because what do you do if you would ever have been rejected? Pout, get angry, try to manipulate. What's this guy do? First of all, he left his calling card at the door, which was spices, which was, was joyful. That's not a bad thing. He comes, she comes to him. What does he do? Verse 4, 6. 
chapter 6. He says, You are beautiful, my darling Esterza, lovely as Jerusalem, majestic as troops with banners. He says, Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. He's, he's trying to say, Listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to go there right now. I'm trying to control, I'm not going down that road. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. He goes on and on and on. But it's interesting. Every other time he describes his, his girl, uh, physically, there's, there's, there's sexual innuendo thrown in there. But here, none. What's he saying? Forget the sex thing for a second, hon. You are still my girl. I just want you to know that. I find you the most beautiful. You are still the lily among thorns. You are still my girl regardless. Forget the sex thing for a moment. Now, can you imagine, I, if that was always the response, how incredibly powerful a relationship could be, a relationship would be. takes us to, uh, and they go through, and they, 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 you can read the rest on it, it, it. They make up if you know what I'm talking about. In chapter 8, though, in verse 6 and 7, two of the most powerful verses on love, I think in the Bible, a romantic love. It says, play, eight, seven, six. It says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty lamb. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. That's how they end their, their relationship. That's how it ends. Application. Let me speak first of all to those folk who are single, perhaps thinking they're going to get married or remarried one day. Let me point out a verse, real key verse that I intentionally didn't point out earlier. Chapter 1, verse 3. Just listen. It says, Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. This book is not all about hormones. Okay, Your name. A person's name is their reputation, it's their character, it's who they are. It's very important to keep in mind that these are not just two folk, folk these are two godly character, character type people. And why that's important is, is this gal, who she gets, a man of character, uh, is what is going to sustain the sexual power down the road. Let's face it, you can go have a relationship with somebody and have a really hot relationship for a short time, but what's going to keep it there is only character over the long term. That's all that's going to keep it. And so if you think about Boaz, he was attracted to Ruth, and one of the things he said about Ruth was, everybody knows your virtue. Your character, your heart, you care for other people beyond yourself. You left your home for the sake of your, of your mother-in-law. You, you love God. Uh, so you need, and I would pr- hope and pray, single person, that you would say, you know what, I, I'm going to commit. Before I get married, it's going to be a person of a good name, a person of character, a person of godliness. Now, here's the deal with those kind of people. They're kind of persnickety folk. Uh, they're very finicky. They're choosy. And they like to choose people who are godly themselves. So if you're going to get a godly person, guess what? You've got to be a godly person. Now, now you can't be one, though, in order to get one. See, it's kind of like manipulation. That's deception. That, that kind of blows away the whole idea of godliness. Uh, and there's no guarantees, of course. But I do know this. For a person who has strong, high character, a person whose integrity runs deep, a person who is... is completely committed to the Lord, someone else who's completely committed to the Lord, well, that's very attractive. 
character is a very, very attractive person. And so for you, even this morning, I would encourage you to make that commitment where you sit between, Lord, I am, forget the past, from this point on, I'm going to be pursuing someone of character. It might mean you have to break up with somebody now. I'm going to be a person like that. Now for the rest of the folk, and single folk even fit into this one, because this is this is this is can be the, this is really the problem. After it's all said and done, we can all have a, I think a better marriage. That's great, but but here's a key problem with marriage and why it doesn't work often. Each of us have a God-shaped vacuum in our heart, Cinderella slipper kinda, and it has been designed to be filled by God, who is if you think about God for a second, He's omniscient. He knows everything about you, but He's crazy in love with you anyway. He's completely forgiving. He's completely merciful. He's not a wimp codependent God. He's strong. He's committed to you growing and being better, but he's not going to beat you over the head every time you drop. Grace is who he's about and truth. That's a, and it, that he will, he's the only one that will fill this. But what we do sometimes is we try to find people, even a good person, even somebody who's really sharp, and we try to get them to fit into that, that spot. But they're never going to fit into that spot because they're fallen. We take sex and we try to make it fill that spot. And after the, the, the thrill is, is worn off, we're empty still. We're empty again. Or maybe we'll tell you what, the best thing that my wife can do is go to Christ on a regular basis to be fulfilled with him, to find his love anew in her life. Because if she's expecting me, she's gonna be, I'm gonna fail her all the time. Likewise, the best thing I can do for Teresa for our marriage is to spend time going to Christ, to be getting, receiving his love over and over again. Now we're not talking about, did you, did you accept Christ way back when? Did you raise your hand? Did you say your prayer? Did you sign a card? Right now, where you stand, where you sit, is Christ filling that that gap in your heart, or maybe it did at one point, but he's, you kind of now you put other things there. Is he there? Because if he's not, your marriage is never going to be what it could be, what it's supposed to be. This aspect of your life will never reach the potential God designed it to reach. So we need to take a second and, and pray with me, okay? And, and if you are just with where you sit, if you are single, I want to encourage you and challenge you right now. To make a commitment just between you and your God that, that you are going to only commit your life to one day. A person of deep character, a person of deep godliness. And I recognize for some of y'all that may be a challenge because that might mean that you've got other relationships you might have to sever right now. And while you're doing that, would you make a commitment to him that with his help and his power... You want to be, and you're going to do what it takes to be a person of character.